Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. If society rests on the home, the dining room table might be the most important piece of furniture in all of society. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. In the Trinity 2020 96 thesis, which is the main quarterly publication of Wittenberg Academy, Ms. Eleanor Mummy wrote an article entitled Daily Thanks, Daily Praise. In that article, she considered the importance of the family meal. Today, Ellie joins us on the Wittenberg Hour to discuss that very topic. Ms. Mummy teaches tragedy and the art and history of composition at Wittenberg Academy. She also serves as an admissions counselor at Bethany Lutheran College in Mankato, Minnesota. Ellie, thank you for joining me today on the Wittenberg Hour. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. The meaning of the first article from Luther's Small Catechism ends with, For all this it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. The first article, as we know, confesses that God the Father is maker of heaven and earth. In the meaning, Luther expounds on this and lists all of these gifts that God has given us. Ellie, you suggest in your 96th thesis article, Daily Thanks, Daily Praise, that the habit of prayer before and after meals is critical in forming Christian piety. How does this happen? I think first and foremost, because habits, once you establish them, are hard to break. And mealtimes are a structured part of your day and can be a structured part of your day. And if you have the opportunity to structure in six prayers a day, two for each meal, not even counting your morning prayers and evening prayers as a family, that is helping you structure in six different moments of prayer throughout your day, which naturally lends itself to Christian piety. And so if you're able to develop that habit, it's hard to break once you have it. And that's one of the things I want to encourage families to do the most is to build that habit so that you struggle to break it, even if you try to. I guess I would say there's a few different ways that I recommend this and think that it works most fluidly. And one of those is going to be that mealtime prayers is a time where prescribed words reign, not creative words. So we have these beautiful common table prayers that we can pray every single day. And I encourage and revere those at a much higher level than I do individual family members praying and kind of making up their own prayer for each day. There's a s- several reasons for that. One of them is going to be our common table prayers come directly from scripture. None of us are going to be able to come up with anything that's better than what is in scripture itself. But also being creative and being unique every single day is not easy. This is something I'm actually talking about with my students right now in art and history of composition. We're just transitioning into writing psalms and psalmic poetry. So specifically religious poetry. And the focus when you're writing religious poetry or writing something with a sacred subject line is that it's not about you. You're not the subject and you're not the focus. 
And it's not easy every single day to come up with something new to say. When you're, when you're writing creatively in general, it's hard to come up with a new idea every day. And that's one of the reasons that editing and returning to things is so helpful. And that's even more so the case when you're just sitting down to pray and you've had a really bad day or a really boring day and you don't know what you wanna pray for. If you have structured words to pray, you remember to pray and you pray for the things you need to, and you don't have to worry about coming up with something you were thankful for that day because you're thanking God for everything that day. So there's a certain benefit to, and, and we talk about this with our students all the time, right? This idea of enduring things, you know, the, the things that you have your scholars read are, are enduring things that then give them the model for their own writing. Absolutely. And I also think one of the things I stress the most is there is so much beauty in commonality. In the modern world, the last thing you want to do is be common and just be normal. But that actually is one of the most beautiful things that you can do. And that is kind of what you should aim for, especially with mealtime prayers. You're aiming for commonality. And part of the beauty of that commonality is if your children are learning to confess the exact same prayer before meal and after meal every day of their lives. They're getting used to that. There come times and places for those special prayers, whether that's at a wedding or at a big birthday party or any of those events that are very out of the ordinary and that you're celebrating something special or mourning something. But honestly, I would even encourage there, the, the best way to do that is to have your pastor there for those moments because your pastor is the person who's trained and who has been taught how to pray and how to kind of craft those prayers from scripture that are gonna support you and celebrate with you or mourn with you. And then you don't have to worry when you're when you're busy with all of this specialness surrounding that event about coming up with a good prayer and looking good in front of everyone else because you had a good prayer that you prayed before the meal. You can hand the microphone, hand the responsibility over to your pastor who should be there for you to support you and celebrate with you or mourn with you in general if you have this big special day and have him do it from the training that he's been given. And that takes the responsibility off of you. It takes the focus off of you and puts it where it needs to be in prayer, which is on Christ. Ellie, we live in a world of devices that bow our heads, both literally and figuratively. And young people and some older people, it seems these days, sometimes seem more proficient at communicating with their thumbs than their mouths. So why is mealtime conversation so important? So this is such an interesting topic for me to discuss because I was and am that young person. I have had a device in my hand since I was 11 or 12. And I know the immediacy of that device. And I know the pressure having one of those devices has on a young person to be responsive right away and to be present on your device 
and connect with those friends who live far away from you. However, you have to come to a point where you realize that when you are prioritizing your device and your communication via device over your communication in person, what you're doing is you're putting someone far away in priority over your actual physical neighbors who are near you. And that's not actually what we're called to do. We're choosing to bypass the neighbors we're most called to serve in order to serve the neighbors that are easier to serve because they're far away and it's harder for them to annoy or frustrate us. So we have to realize and fight against that impulse to prioritize the people who are not present in your life. Even if they are really important to you, they are not the people you live with in a house and who you have responsibilities towards. And so they cannot be your priority every minute of every day through a device. It's also worth a conversation, and this is probably a very long conversation, that all online communication is contrived. Even if it is very genuine in friendship, you are still creating something and you have a weird dynamic for that. You have extra space to overthink what you're gonna say, to edit what you're going to say, and manipulate what you're going to say to have it look or come across a certain way. Whether that's in a personal chat with someone or on an Instagram post or a TikTok video, you have a lot of editing time and a lot of potential feedback time. I think one of the things, I mean, and I am just as guilty of this, especially uh, everyone does this who uses devices, but there's this temptation to take things that are difficult conversations and have them over devices and then pull people into them who don't deserve to be into them. So if I get a difficult text from someone, it's a lot easier for me to say, well, why don't I just send this text to every person that I know and ask them how they would respond? And then I'll craft my response based on the peanut gallery's opinions. And that's not good or healthy, nor does it respect your neighbor but it's something devices allow for. And so you have to be aware that all of that communication is at least somewhat contrived. This person has had the ability to edit or rethink or change what they are saying, and they are not treating you as a neighbor in the same way that someone flesh and blood can in front of you. And that's one of the reasons that mealtimes are really important right now in the current culture is that the structure of modern life doesn't teach young people to have conversations outside of devices. You're not having conversations in a schoolroom, in the hallways, when you're hanging out with your friends that don't involve devices. Your main sources of communication as a young person are this person is my friend. The way I communicate with them every day is that they send me 30 TikTok videos and I respond to them and vice versa. That's not the same kind of conversation as sitting down face to face with people and discussing things with them. You have this opportunity with mealtimes to train your children's minds and their souls to actually converse with other people that develops them as a person. It teaches them to think 
critically and reflectively about what they've learned and what they've done and teaches them to share it. From my own experience, I would say there is this fascinating thing that happens when you get that freedom to express yourself in mealtime, even though it's awkward and you are not super eloquent at mealtime, you don't have to be, you're just conversing with people, that many days my siblings and I will find ourselves, once the mealtime is over, following our parents around to keep talking to them. Because you don't get that opportunity to have a genuine conversation that often. And as you develop that habit to have that mealtime conversation, you're going to aim for it and reach out for it even outside of mealtimes because you're going to see your parents and associate them with real conversation and real feedback and real opportunity to digest and discuss the things that you are thinking about in full. So mealtime is a structured planned event that parents can rely on, but also that children can rely on to be something they don't get almost anywhere else. And that always ends up opening up this kind of Pandora's box for your children to feel like they can come up to you afterward or follow you into the living room and sit down and talk your ear off. And I think the world would be much better if the problem parents had where it was getting their children to stop talking, which is a problem my <laughs> parents have always had with me, than getting their parents to ever say anything to them. If you can get them to trust you and be so used to and desiring of that soundboard to talk about what they're learning and what they're thinking, even if it's awkward or weird or random or unimportant, you are teaching them to have trust in other people and to not feel like they need to be perfect in the way that they present themselves in those conversations. And I think that's great training for all aspects of life from work to especially marriage. If you're, if you're teaching your children to do that, that is going to be so valuable to them when they get married because they will not try to make themselves perfect and have this contrived image of themselves through a device that they've developed on their device interacting in their marriage because they will have the confidence to just have real mealtime conversations with their spouse. So sometimes in the midst of this, and you've alluded to this a little bit in some of the things that, that you've shared with us today and in your article, certainly, but sometimes it's, it's really hard, you know, especially mm -hmm. when children are young to, to have this sort of atmosphere, especially when there are multiple children involved, multiple young children Sometimes, sometimes the chaos is overwhelming. It's not a leave it to beaver. Everyone sits down and they're all very polite and they listen to one another and, and all of that. There's not an idyllic Norman Rockwell serenity. So why is it important to keep trying and to keep fighting for family meals when it'd really just be a lot easier to put some food on the table, have the kids eat, have them run off, and then the parents sit down and eat in peace or whatever the case may be. I think simply put, it's because you're a family. And 
family is not necessarily an easy thing. We don't, it's a beautiful thing and a lovely thing, but being an active member of a family is not skipping through a field of daisies. It has a lot of responsibilities to it. And furthermore, you don't, you don't need it to be idyllic and it doesn't need to be perfect. I love to cook. I love to make really, really fancy meals, but that's not what your children need when you have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and then like an eight-month-old. They don't need you to make beef bouillon and do a really, really fancy four-course meal. That's not what they require from you. And it's not anything that they would understand. What they need is for you to be present and for you to converse with them and interact with them and teach them to act. Family meals are going to help you slowly and surely and with a lot of rockiness, teach your children how to act at the table. One of the things I've heard from my sister who currently has two children and from some of my other family members who are raising younger children at the moment, who I've gotten to learn from and watch as they interact with their toddlers and like grade schoolers, is that children pick up on routine and that children pick up on the mannerisms of their parents. So a lot of children will start behaving better at the table and once they get a chair at the table rather than a high chair. They, they notice that there is a certain way that you are supposed to act at the table and have been constantly reminded that we don't throw food on the floor. We don't do this. These are things we do not interrupt people when they speak at the table. And even if it takes multiple years to do that, they will learn it and it becomes just habit. They learn it to the same extent that they learn language. If you're teaching your children to interact at meals at the same time they're learning language, they will absorb what you show them. So if you don't fight for that family meal, they're learning bad habits and they're not necessarily seeing how they should be acting instead. They're simply going, well, the way that meals work is that I sit down, I eat, I throw everything everywhere, I be as loud as I want to, and then when I'm done, mom and dad eat and I get to run around and play. Whereas that constant and very frustrating battle of having your children at the table with you and reprimanding them and reminding them of how they're meant to act when they eat as a family is something they will learn eventually. Even if your one-year-old doesn't get there till they turn five, that constant reminder teaches them that this is the way they are meant to do things and they will conform to that at some point when it clicks for them in their head. But if you don't give them the example and the expectation, they can't fulfill it for you. So what encouragement or perhaps what advice, you've given us a, a lot of encouragement. So what advice have you, either from your own experience or from observing other families, what advice would you give to young parents specifically struggling to make mealtimes a place of peace and not war? I would say one of the best things that you can do as parents is not to use mealtime as a time to vent. No matter how bad your day is, mealtime is not the time to focus on what frustrated you. 
mealtime is this opportunity to not focus on that. And if you have nothing nice to say about the day, you can find out what other people thought about their day. You can ask your spouse. You can talk to your children about the books they've read, even if it's just discussing Goodnight Moon for 20 minutes. You have this opportunity to focus not on the negatives and to aim for this moment, whether it's a 20-minute meal or an hour-and-a-half-long meal, where you have set your stress aside and you are going to eat and be re-energized and connect with the people around you. And if you have had a bad enough day that you know you can't sit down and not vent about your frustrations, that's the evenings when you do popcorn and apple nights and you sit in front of the TV and you watch a movie with your family while eating. We did not vent around the table together. That was not something we were meant to do. In fact, in recent times even, as a fairly adult household, the youngest person in my parents' household is turning 18 this year. So we're a much older household now. My mom still, in about probably two weeks into March, said, there is no coronavirus at this table. We will not discuss negative things at the table. We can discuss it every other minute of the day, but at the table, we will not discuss this. This is not what I want my table to be like. And that is, I think, really crucial. If you make the mealtime not a time to complain and not a time to be frustrated, it also encourages your children to do the same. So there have been hundreds of times that one of my siblings and I have disagreed on something and are angry with each other and frustrated, but we are not allowed to express that or acknowledge that at the dinner table. If we are at the dinner table together, we will have to sit next to each other, pass each other meals, talk to each other as we normally would, and then we can go back to disliking each other after the meal, but we are not allowed to express any of that at the table. That's been an assumed part of mealtime for as long as I can remember. I am not supposed to instigate arguments at the mealtime and at the dinner table. And that, of course, then encourages you as a youth to be like, okay, am I really that mad at my sibling? I don't want to deal with this. Once the meal is over, we're going to go back to being annoyed with each other. That's a lot of work and energy. I don't want to do that. And it starts that instigation. It instigates forgiveness. You begin to rethink how angry you actually are or how annoyed you actually are because you've had a dedicated amount of time where you're not allowed to think about it and you have to just walk away from it. So to a certain extent, the family table becomes the family altar. It's a place of haven and it's a place of rest and to a certain extent, it mirrors what we receive with our family, our church family, at the divine service. Absolutely. I think that's one of the most beautiful parallels we have in everyday life. I think, frankly, one of the most beautiful things we can do is realize and celebrate and embrace the things in daily life that reflect the divine service, because there are quite a few, and there are quite a few aspects of common life and everyday life that reflect almost directly what we are receiving in the divine service. 
mealtime is one of the most beautiful to me. And it is that encouragement to forgiveness and this peace and unity at mealtime that is obviously mirroring the altar itself when you kneel at the altar and receive the forgiveness of sins. I also think this even extends to the preparation of the meal. One of my favorite theories is that food and the make, making and preparing of food is a liberal art and perhaps the most liberal of arts in a classical sense, simply because it is a work that you do and can do with a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of commitment that isn't about receiving praise or thanksgiving, but is about giving something to others. Because when you're cooking for someone, when you cook for your family, you are doing something for the sake of it disappearing. You don't want it to exist for any long period of time. You're not doing it so that people can see it and laud it. You're doing it so that the people around you can join together to love and enjoy it and have that kind of bonding time together. That's another reason I always encourage people to cook if they can. If you have the time to cook, that extends that family meal time because you have the opportunity to show your children how to cook. You can show them that you care enough about that meal time to slave away in the kitchen, even when it's a busy day, to make food for your family. That's a really, really great witness to how important you think family meal time is. And it also ends up permeating family meal time in your children's minds. My brother is in the Marine Corps. One of the first thing he does when he gets to come home is make a list of meals that we grew up eating that he wants my mom to make for him. That is what home means to him is the meals. Our family in so many ways now rotates around and circulates around the concept of meals together. We plan the meals together often very far in advance if we have siblings coming from far away. And we do that because we're looking for that unity and that space for forgiveness and family that you get in family mealtime that is, of course, echoed at the altar. And so our lives have grown and become very centered around that mealtime as a family. And again, that's really not to say that it's all fun and games or that we never had mealtimes as a family that were not super pleasant. I definitely was that kid who would throw a fit and didn't want to come down to the table and didn't want to eat and was very grumpy and completely a pain looking back. But that didn't mean that I didn't understand the significance of mealtime. And I think one of the indicators of that is that if you are truly stubborn and truly frustrated, with something, you don't want to come down to the table because you know if you have to come sit at the table, you have to act like you're not and you have to be forgiving. And if you don't want to do that, you're going to sit in your room and say, I don't want to come down and eat because you know if you do, you're going to be forgiving and that's not what you want. And I think that even illustrates that your children are getting it, even if they're being really frustrating or they are really, really steadily against it, it's because they're starting to understand what it represents. They're sinfully trying to fight against that for a little bit. So if you happen to have a family 
and and you're listening to this and you're going, I want to provide that for my family, but my kids are older. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to run out of formation time, you know, and I don't know if I can write this ship. Family mealtime either is non-existent or when it does exist, it's chaotic. How do I bring this to my family so that this can be our reality rather than just this pie in the sky wish that I have? I think first and foremost, don't sabotage yourself. I went off to college and met a whole bunch of people, obviously, who didn't experience meal times the way that my family does and have no concept of what that even would be like. And I guarantee you, your children desire it secretly in their hearts as much as you do. I cannot even tell you how many conversations I've had with college students who find out what family mealtime looks like to my family or who come to church with me and then get to come and sit at my table with me and my family who make casual comments afterward. Oh, I wish my family did something like this. That would be so nice. I don't even, I, I don't even know what everybody else is doing with their lives, but I think this would be really nice. And I think with incorporating this in older children, one of the things that you would want to focus on the most is that idea of not using that space to be controversial or to vent. When you have older children and you don't check in on them as much, or you don't have that, you know, I have an hour three times a day that I get to sit and eat with them and hear about their lives, there can be that temptation to try and right any wrongs that you see when you have that hour to check in with them. But it, you have to limit yourself to remember that the dinner table is not the time to be disciplinary and to wage war against your children. If your children come to the dinner table and feel like what they're gonna get is a scolding, they're not gonna want to come to the dinner table. If they come to the dinner table while they have been arguing with you or frustrated with you, and you purely spend the time going, how was your day today? What did you learn today? How was practice? You force your children to remember that no matter how frustrated you are, you are their parents and you love them and you care for them. And you are going to check in on them and want to hear those things regardless of what current rocky moments you guys are going through. So if you, create that safe space, this space where your, your children are coming to eat and enjoy food, but also to enjoy your company and you're not making it in any way a disciplinary thing, it'll be easier to incorporate in, them into that. And also with older children, politely and kindly remind them to leave their devices behind. My mom has always made us not have our devices at the table, or just if you have your phone in your pocket, that's fine, but you better not check it because this is not the time to do that. You can sit through an hour's worth of mealtime without checking your phone. And she does that, and she does it without arguing with us, but she does it firmly and gently so that we remember this is not the time for this, this is the time for us to sit there. And you're gonna have meals where 
you are sitting there and asking your children, how was your day today? I made baked potatoes today. What's your favorite form of potatoes to eat? And you're having what feels like the most painful small talk of all times. And you're also gonna have meal times then at some point where they're going to have something they wanna talk about, where they might sit down and say, I scored a really, really cool catch in football practice today. And then they're gonna to wanna to talk about that. And you just encourage them to share whatever they are able and interested in sharing at the time, regardless of how silly or seemingly insignificant it is. Let them talk, let them explain to you something funny that they saw on the internet, even if it just doesn't make sense to you and seems really odd. If you let them bond with you, they are gonna slowly find it harder and harder to not open up to you because they're getting used to it, even in very small things. Going back to a, a comment that you had made just a moment ago, as you've been talking, so many parallels to the divine service have been coming to mind. The fact that at the beginning of the service is confession and absolution. And we do that before we receive all of the gifts that we receive in the divine service, receiving the word and receiving Christ's body and blood, that first we confess who we are, that we are sinners, and then and then we receive the gifts. And that's a beautiful thing to ponder all of the parallels between the family meal and what God gives us and the the tradition of the ceremony and the liturgy of the divine service, how in some respect, and, and it could go both ways, right? You know, the divine service, you know, you talk about piety, trains us to live in the world. You know, we model our lives after that. And at the same time, there shouldn't be a disconnect between how we act. And I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't going to be, you know, blow ups and, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. things, things that we shouldn't do. But just thinking about the parallels between the life of the family and the life of the church, there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a disconnect. There shouldn't be, well, we do this here and then we do this there there should be continuity. There really should. There are certain friends of mine, for example, my college roommate comes to mind. She and I really became close in many ways by discussing these things. We thought, and still to this day, one of the things we love most to talk about is what we call the theology of the home. And this idea that your common everyday home life is structured in a way that reflects the divine service and re reflects scripture in such a beautiful way. And we see this throughout the scriptures, whether it's mealtime, which I think is a great reflection of the sacrament of the altar, or marriage in and of itself, which is probably the most common metaphor or descriptor that we use to describe Christ's love for his church. There are so many parallels there. You're, you're finding these things that are constantly reflective of what you're reading in scripture and that scripture reflects on. 
That's another thing we talk about a lot when we study the Psalms in my class is that Psalms are not written about really weird, unique, beautiful, unusual circumstances that nobody's ever experienced before. When you read the Psalms, a lot of them are talking about farming and about flowers blooming and the sun coming up. And those are the metaphors and the things they're pointing to because commonality is important. People do not relate to things that they do not experience ever. There's this beautiful theology tied to everyday things, tied to the things that we deal with on an everyday basis. And the more you are able to shape and reflect those everyday things to the scriptures that talk about them and that the more that you connect those in your mind and in your family life, the more that Christian piety is developed because you are now sitting down at meal and you are remembering and thinking of the sacrament of the altar and you are preparing yourself for a family meal in a minor way, the same way that you prepare yourself for the sacrament of the altar in a very major way. And it becomes a parallel that you see more and more and more, the more you develop that habit and the more you look for it. And that opens up an entire perspective of common everyday life that's very, very frustrating to something that's very, very beautiful in the scriptures. I always say, as a parent, when you're really, really frustrated with your children because they're toddlers and they're chaotic and they don't listen and they do the same things over and over and over again, just read quite a bit of Exodus because that's what the children of Israel do all of the time. And they just yes. complain and repeat exactly what they're wanting. And that gives you better perspective. If your child throws their food on the floor like 18 different times, is that really at the same level of frustration as God seeing the children of Israel complain and go to Baal all of the time instead of loving him? You can kind of get this perspective and greater understanding for God's love for his children and for Christ's love for his church in family life. And I think it's no accident that God establishes family as the primary structure in the Ten Commandments for community, and that family is the language he uses for his relationship to us and the way that he serves us in the divine service. Ms. Eleanor Mummy teaches tragedy and the art and history of composition at Wittenberg Academy. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute joy. Thank you for having me. It has been wonderful. I love to talk about this and I'm very excited to encourage all sorts of families to work on developing that habit. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.